a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. Hey, my name's Steve Hall, and I want to thank you for joining our Bible study today. Before we get into today's Bible study, I would like to invite you to come to check out our Standing Firm Bible study class in person. We're at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. We meet in the downstairs fellowship hall of the auditorium building at 10.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings immediately after the 9 o'clock worship service. Here's a little map for you. See the little red lines? <laughs> Notice if you're in the auditorium, just follow those red arrows. If you're in the back, go straight down that hallway behind you to the stairwell. If you're near the front of the auditorium, you can go out the left door, and I mean left as you're sitting in the auditorium looking toward the pulpit and the choir. Go to your left, go out that door, all the way down to the end of the hall, keep to your left, all the way down to the stairwell, and then turn right and go down the stairwell. We meet in the fellowship hall around the tables near the kitchen downstairs. If you have trouble with stairs, there are men driving golf carts near the entrance to the auditorium building at the crossover there who will be glad to give you a ride to a door that enters the building on our level, so you won't have to do any steps at all. We're a co-educational class, men and women both invited. We're for all ages, doesn't matter how old or how young. Children and youth are certainly welcome, but some children and youth actually prefer to go to the children and youth classes, which meet at the same time we meet, more on their level. Dress, totally casual. Class members are certainly encouraged to participate in the Bible study, ask questions, engage in conversation. But listen, if you happen to be kind of shy, we promise we're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to ask you to read. We're not going to ask you to pray. We're not going to ask you any specific questions directed to you. It isn't unusual for class members who are kind of shy just to not say anything at all once class gets started. So that's your choice. So I'm just saying, please don't feel intimidated if you happen to be the shy type. I know sometimes the first meeting is kind of tough for the shy people. But there's never been a time when it's been more important for God's people to meet in small Bible study fellowship groups in order to encourage each other. We've got to stand firm in his truth. We've got to stand firm on his word. These are very confusing days we're living in. You know that. So we'd love for you to join us and just see for yourself what God's doing in our class. If you'd like more information... Go to AboundingJoy.com. There's the web address right there on the screen. You can click on the Standing Firm Bible Class menu item when you get there. You may want to hit pause right now or do a screen save to get, make sure you get the spelling right, but you can learn more information about us there. Now, here's today's Bible study. I hope and pray it helps you grow stronger in our Lord Jesus Christ and in your knowledge of His Word and of His will for your life. Well, hi, guys. Thanks for joining me in Bible study again today. We are working our way through the letter of Paul to the Romans, and we are in chapter 5. A couple of weeks ago, if you were with us, we saw that one of the results of our being justified is that we can exult. We can exult in hope of the glory of God. We talked about that. We learned that the word translated by the King James Version in verse 2 is rejoice, and in verse 3 is glory, and in verse 11 is joy is really the same Greek word all the way through. And it means literally to exult, to re really rejoice, to rejoice greatly or to boast with great confidence. It's a really strong word. We learned that right now, right now, we have peace with God in Jesus Christ. Right now, we stand in God's grace. We talked about that. 
And we learned that one day we're going to gaze upon our Lord in all his glory. And one day we ourselves are going to be glorified. And we learned that if we will just meditate on these truths from God's word, we will find ourselves exulting, rejoicing with great confidence, boasting because of this certain expectation and this certain anticipation that God is doing something awesome and he's revealed it to us in his word. Well, today I want us to continue to focus on this Greek word translated exult because it's obviously important to Paul. He uses it three times in this passage. By the way, if you're interested in this kind of thing, the Greek word itself is kakaomai. It's used 38 times in the New Testament. Most of the time it's translated to boast. But it's important to understand how he uses this word in verse 3. Let's read it again. Remember, this is God's word. And not only this, but we also exult, kakaomai, in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. First, notice the very fact of tribulation in the Christian life. The Greek word for tribulation here is thlipsis, and it refers to all kinds of difficulties and stresses and afflictions including pain and illness, and including persecutions, including grief and suffering. If you've read your Bible much, you're probably aware that one of the subjects God deals with most frequently in the New Testament is the fact, the fact of tribulation in the life of the believer. Sometimes, sadly, unbelievers or immature believers misunderstand what Jesus meant when he said, I've come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. And they get that confused in their minds and they equate the abundant life somehow with a life without any problems, a life without any tribulation, a life without any difficulties. And they may get the idea that if you become a Christian, all of your problems are going to vanish away just like smoke. No more difficulties, no more trials, no more tribulations. And of course, there are some unscrupulous teachers out there so-called spiritual leaders who have made some ridiculous promises because people like to hear these things, but they're promises you can't find in Scripture for sure, and they lead some people to believe silly things like this. So very often you can discern between a genuine Christian and a superficial so-called believer in, when they encounter tribulation. You can see the difference. Unfortunately, there are those who very happily say, yeah, I, I want to receive Jesus. That sounds pretty cool. I'd like Jesus to be my Savior. And then when life gets difficult, they think, well, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't know it was going to be like this. And they walk away from it. You remember the parable Jesus told of the soils? Sometimes we call it the parable of the sower. But Jesus said, some people are like seed that falls on rocky places. You remember that? He said, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one, he said, who hears the word, and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. He's one of those guys who say, I didn't sign up for this. this is not, I didn't think it'd be like this. I'm done. He didn't understand the gospel. So we can count on this. Affliction will certainly come. And affliction will test the genuineness of our faith. Is it real or not? In John 16, verse 33, Jesus said this. It's about as blunt and clear as it can be. He said, in the world, you shall 
have tribulation. Just mark it down. He didn't say you might have some difficult times. He most certainly didn't say you shall not have tribulation. He said exactly the opposite. In Acts 14, Paul was teaching very young Christians his very first missionary journey. He said, we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. He wanted them to know it up front. Peter's first letter, he writes, don't be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. <laughs> you should know better. In John's first letter, he writes, do not marvel, brothers, if the world hates you. You shouldn't be too surprised. In the very last letter Paul would ever write, his final letter, his second letter to Timothy, he said, all, 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 A-L-L, who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, there it is, shall be persecuted. Count on it. So all through the New Testament, the fact and the reality of tribulation of different kinds is clearly taught. You can't escape it if you just read your New Testament carefully. So today it comes to us, sometimes in the form of sickness, handicaps, injuries, maybe birth defects, maybe disease. Maybe it's a godless antagonistic boss. Any of you have that situation? Maybe it's a family member who screams at you or curses you. Some people live with that. Could be financial hardship. Could be malicious gossip. Could be so-called friends that betray you. Could be a government that doesn't like our biblical belief system. We're all having to deal with that more and more. On and on and on it can go. But it's going to come. God promises that. Now, after we've lived life for a few years, most of us are not terribly surprised by the reality of tribulation. We've been through some of it. We know it's real. But the truly astonishing thing is how God says we're supposed to respond to it. This is amazing. But before we look at how God tells us we're supposed to respond to it, we should respond to it, we must respond to it, let's think for just a few minutes about how people often do respond to it. Sometimes people panic, especially if they're very young and they haven't had much tribulation in the past, and this may be their first serious trial, first serious tribulation. We can just lose control. We can go to pieces. Sometimes we just get angry. Let a little hardship come our way, a little difficulty little tribulation. We start looking for somebody to blame. Maybe it's our spouse. Maybe it's our kids. Could be our parents. Could be our boss. Could be a co-worker. We could be blaming God. We look around for somebody to blame on our, our problems, on get angry. We boil, we fume, we complain, we gripe. Some people even start swearing and cursing at their misfortune. And of course, those responses are not only childish and immature, but they're definitely sinful. They're not pleasing to God. God does not want us to respond like this. I once heard about a pastor who went to visit an elderly lady in his church, and she'd been going through some pretty tough times. And when he sat down with her to try to encourage her, he was kind of disappointed because she just began to gripe and complain, and she was grousing and moaning and groaning about all of her problems. And pastor listened for a while, and he finally said, you know, I know you're going through a rough time, ma'am. But I'm just not sure this is the way God wants you to respond to these problems. He's got a better way for you to respond. <laughs> well, at that point, she got upset with her pastor. And she said, Pastor, when God sends us tribulation, I think he expects us to tribulate a little. 
Well, she was missing something very, very important from God's word. We must not miss this. And then some people, when tribulation comes our way, have a tendency just to respond by being filled with self-pity. We tend to think thoughts like, I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? <laughs> and we look around for somebody who will sympathize with us. Probably shared with you before. I'm pretty sure I have. Maybe not all of you have heard it. But when Vicki first got news of her breast cancer diagnosis in 2012, and we first sat down with her cancer doctor for the very first time, who happened to be a lady doctor, the doctor asked, how are you holding up? And I, we were both there and I spoke up. <laughs> you know me. I spoke up and said, actually, she's holding up really well because she has a lot of spiritual strength and trust in the Lord. And the doctor looked at Vicky and said, have you told him the whole truth? Have you told him how you get in the shower and cry and scream, why me, why me? And Vicky looked her straight in the eye and said, well, actually, that's not the truth. I don't ask why me. I ask, why not me? I know the Lord's going to get me through this. Unfortunately, that doctor still didn't seem to get it. <laughs> I'm not sure she really believed us. I don't know. And many, many people don't get it. They'd be filled with self-pity, so they assume everybody's just like them. <laughs> They'll be filled with self-pity, too. Not if you really know the Lord really well. Another way we sometimes handle tribulation is to have kind of a grin and bear it attitude. There are a lot of people like that. Try to act tough. Grit our teeth. We're going to be macho men. <laughs> that kind of response to suffering has its roots in an ancient philosophy called Stoicism. Have you ever heard of the Stoics? The Stoics were followers of the Greek philosopher Zeno, lived about 300 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And they prided themselves in being able to handle all kinds of crises, all kinds of pain, all kinds of suffering and difficulty without showing any emotion at all. No emotion. <laughs> but when it comes to the tribulations of life, God doesn't want us to panic. God doesn't want us to get angry. God doesn't want us to wallow in self-pity. God doesn't want us to try to be stoic. Look at verse 3 again. Not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. God says we are to exult in tribulation. He didn't even say exult in spite of tribulation. He said exult in tribulation. Just as he had said in verse 2, we're to exult in hope of the glory of God. Same way we're to exult in tribulation. Now, for many people, at least at first glance, if they haven't thought it through, it just doesn't compute. It almost seems absurd. They read something like this. This looks ridiculous. Surely Paul's exaggerating somehow for some purpose. But listen, guys, as we read through the New Testament very carefully, we find God teaching us this very same thing over and over again. He doesn't want us to miss it. So it says through James, consider it what? Pure joy. Pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Peter wrote this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but what? Rejoice. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You remember when Jesus had been raised from the dead and he ascended into heaven and the apostles are now carrying the gospel out to the people? And they were, they were told not to do it. They were flogged. They were threatened. They were warned not to preach Jesus anymore. 
The Bible says they went on their way from the presence of the council, doing what? Rejoicing, rejoicing that they'd been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Look at what Paul wrote in his second letter, the Corinthians. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about, and guys, it's the same Greek word that we're looking at in Romans chapter 5. I will rather exult in, that's what he's saying, same Greek word, my weaknesses. And he says, therefore, I take pleasure. You see it? I take pleasure with weaknesses, with insults, with stresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Look at what Jesus said in Luke chapter 6. Blessed are you, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. <laughs> he's, he's picturing exulting here. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And when we first read words like this, and we sort of visualize what Jesus is saying, it almost seems ridiculous. It almost seems comedic and absurd. So let's make sure we get God's balance here. Is God telling us that if I fall down the steps on the way to Sunday school and break my leg, I'm supposed to say, yes, 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 that was so much fun. I'm going to do it again. <laughs> you think that's what God's saying? I don't think so. I don't think God's teaching some kind of spiritual divine masochism here. No, no, no. I don't think he wants us to seek out pain as if we're seeking out some kind of thrill. I don't think he wants us to pretend that tribulation feels good. We don't have to pretend that it really doesn't hurt. That would be hypocrisy, wouldn't it? That'd be a kind of lying. That would make us phonies. No, no, no. That's not what God's talking about. In Hebrews chapter 12, God says, Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. It hurts. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, we don't hear him saying, Oh, this is so much fun. That'd be silly. That'd be ridiculous. No, he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. He was in great agony. He didn't pretend he wasn't. Many years ago, I had a friend in Florida named Gilbert Arant, and he developed cancer, and it was really bad. It was terminal. And I was with him some during his dying process. But all the way through, he was a strong Christian. He kept his eyes on Jesus throughout the process. And he and I talked openly about what it'd be like someday when we had our new bodies in glory. But his attitude was always this, he, and he said these words, or words like them. He said, I would never, ever have chosen to go through this, but I would not take anything for the experience. He was walking closer to the Lord than he had in all his life. And through the years, I've known several people like that. That's the way God wants us to respond to these things. Gilbert wept. He hurt. He didn't pretend it was easy but he was still exulting in the Lord. I think that's closer to the kind of attitude God says we're supposed to have. We don't go looking for tribulation. We don't have to do it. It'll come. And when it does come, we don't pretend it doesn't hurt. There'll probably be some real tears in our eyes. We don't pretend our hearts are not breaking. But in the middle of it all, we're still rejoicing, boasting, exulting in our tribulation. So how do we do that? How do we learn how to do that? Well, he explains it right here. 
We can exult in our tribulation because we know something. You see it there in verse 3? Not only this, we also exult in our tribulation knowing, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And so in verse 3, he tells us this is what we know. This tribulation is doing something. It's working something. It's producing something. It's bringing about something. Now, we have to be really careful here. We don't want to move too quickly. It'd be easy to just quickly read over these verses, and you know, that's pretty cool, <laughs> and not really absorb what he's saying. We can glance over Scripture without really internalizing it. We sort of look at it and say, that's, that sounds good. That's pretty interesting. But we have to internalize it, so that takes a little time. But if we can really and truly internalize what he's telling us here that tribulation produces, I'm pretty sure we would agree when we finally get it that the appropriate response really is to exult in it. That's not an exaggeration. We would quit panicking. We'd quit getting angry. We'd quit feeling sorry for ourselves. We'd quit trying to be stoic. We would exult. Before we examine what he says tribulation produces here in Romans chapter 5, I want us to notice something he said that's very similar to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Some of you may have memorized this. It's a pretty prominent verse. 2 Corinthians 4.17, Paul said, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us. There it is. Works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Same idea. The tribulation we experience is accomplishing something. It's working out something for us. I think a really close analogy here is a woman in labor. A woman in labor about to give birth to a child. Nothing easy about it. It's a very difficult process she's going through. It can be overwhelmingly exhausting for the mother. And most women probably wouldn't call that process easy or light. But in the midst of it and throughout the process, she's full of joy. She's exulting. Why? Because she knows this difficult work, this difficult labor she's going through is producing something. She knows she'll soon be holding a beautiful baby in her arms. And the intense labor is not easy, but she has a firm grasp of what the end result of that labor is going to be. And God's teaching us here in the same way. We have to have a firm grip and a firm understanding of what the tribulation is producing. And he says, first of all, it produces perseverance. Perseverance. Tribulation brings about perseverance. The Greek word for perseverance is hupomone. Hupomone means to persevere, to be steadfast, to stay steady over the long run. Don't quit. Don't give up. Here's how that works. Here I am. Let's pretend for just a minute that I'm a young Christian. I know I'm an old man, but let's pretend. And I've committed my life to Christ. And now I'm just living my life. And I'm rocking along, doing pretty well, pretty excited about my commitment to Christ, feeling pretty confident. But all of a sudden, unexpectedly, I ran into a big life problem. I wasn't anticipating it. What does this problem cause me to do? Well, I think for a real Christian, it, it, it has the same effect on us as that sudden storm had on the disciples. You remember when they were in the boat with Jesus and he was asleep? You remember that, that episode? You remember how they reacted? He was in the stern sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him up and said to him, teacher, don't you care? We're going to die. <laughs> They're crying out to Jesus. Well, we do the same thing. 
And it's an appropriate thing to do. When trials come along and we realize this is too big for me, I don't know what to do. We cry out to God just like they did. Lord, don't you see what's happening to me? Lord, I'm in trouble. Lord, I need help. Where are you, Lord? Help me. One of the purposes of trouble and adversity is to bring us to that point very quickly. Forces us to cry out to God. Difficulty should drive us to God. And it's especially valuable to us if we've grown a little complacent in our walk with God. If we thought things are rocking along pretty good here. I'm I'm doing pretty well here. And we begin to let ourselves drift a little bit. Maybe allow ourselves to feel a little self-sufficient. We kind of got things under control. A time of adversity can give us a much needed course correction, can help us reevaluate our priorities, can really be valuable, even though it's painful. And what do we do? We cry out to God. We need more strength. We need more grace. We need more wisdom. Now, how do you think God responds to that? Well, how do we respond when our kids get in some kind of trouble or we hear them crying out for help? If I were sitting in my house reading, or studying, or maybe talking with Vicky, and suddenly I heard from outside one of our grandchildren crying out, help, Grandpa, help. <laughs> how do you think I'm going to react to that? Well, you know exactly how I'm going to react to that. I'm going to drop what I'm doing, run outside, and give that grandchild my full undivided attention. I may not know exactly what to do, but I'm going to do anything I can to help my grandchild. You know that. Now, the wonderful news is God's big enough. He doesn't have to drop what he's doing. <laughs> he can do everything at once. And he does respond to our intense cries. And unlike me, he knows exactly what to do. He knows what the perfect response is. Look at Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. God hears it when we cry out to him. Verse 17, a couple of verses later. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Remember the disciples in the boat? We left them in the boat a while ago. They cried out to Jesus. Remember how he responded? Well, he said to the wind, peace, be still. And the wind ceased. It was a great calm. He fixed the problem. And he said to the disciples, why are you so afraid? (laughs) Have you still no faith? So trials and tribulations wake us up to this fresh realization of our weaknesses, of our inability to handle things, and they drive us closer to our Lord Jesus. That's a good thing. And then in his time and in his way, he quietens the storm. He delivers us through the trial, through the difficulty. Most of us, I'm I'm sure most of you watching this video, most of us, and especially those of us who have several years under our belts, we've experienced this. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, what happens next? Okay, God delivers us from the trial. We get through the trial. We rock along for a while. And behold, another trial, (laughs) another one. And once again, we cry out to God for help. And once again, in his time, in his way, he delivers us. And that process continues down through the years. We run into another trial. We cry out to God. God delivers us. And after a few years of that, we begin to get steady. We've experienced the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus. We know by experience that he's going to bring us through this one way or another. So eventually, when a new trial comes, we don't panic anymore. We don't have to get angry. We don't have to feel sorry for ourselves. There's a confidence. There's a peace. There's a steady assurance that Jesus will bring us out of this trial just as he's brought us out of all these other trials he's brought us through in the past. 
sometimes it can become even kind of exciting. We, we hit a trial and we think, wow, I wonder how God's going to handle this one. We're confident he's going to handle it. We just don't know how. We're learning to trust him. Maybe it's kind of like breaking in a horse. Some of you guys are probably horse people. Must be a terrifying experience for a horse the very first time a saddle saw on his back. But after a time, he learns, my master isn't really out to kill me after all. <laughs> and he learns to trust his master. And so tribulation brings about perseverance. Now look at verse 4. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope. So perseverance produces proven character. The King James says experience, but that's not a good translation of this word. The Greek word here that God uses is dokime, and it means proof, or the state of being approved, or something that's been tested and found to be genuine. The point is the steadiness produced by tribulation leads to proof that we are who we say we are. We're real Christians. We're the real thing. We're genuine. One of the tire companies in the United States used to show commercials. Some of you may remember this. They showed their tires being driven really, really hard over hot desert sands and over giant, massive chug holes and over really, really rough cobblestone roads. They're just bouncing around like crazy. And then they show those same tires being brutally twisted and pulled and stretched beyond all normal treatment. And at the end of that commercial, you're looking at that tire and it looks as good as new. And we're told this tire has been tested. This tire has been proven. You can trust this tire. <laughs> well, that commercial captures a little bit of the idea that tribulation works out perseverance, and perseverance brings proof that our Christian faith is real. It's been tested. God is in the process of producing tested, tried, proven children of faith. It's the kind of thing Paul's talking about in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 1. Let's look at this. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Do you hear what Paul's saying here? He'd suffered pretty badly, pretty awful. And he'd learned not to trust himself. He'd learned to trust God. God was the one who delivered him. And Paul had developed some serious steadiness. <laughs> he'd learned. And did you notice he did not conclude this passage by saying, and now thankfully it's all over. No more trials for me. <laughs> no, no. He says, he will deliver us again. He's saying, I know my trials aren't over, but I'm confident that God will do in the future what he's done in the past. Look at verse four again. Perseverance, proven character, proven character, hope. Isn't that interesting? He started with hope back in verse two. Remember that? We looked at that in an earlier study. Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope. There it is, in hope of the glory of God. We talked about hope then. So what's this mean? Well, in verse two, he's saying, we know we've been justified by grace through faith, and therefore we can exult in hope of the glory of God. We can have a definite, very certain expectation of this future glory. It's going to be awesome. We exult. Now he's saying, when we're delivered through tribulation, after tribulation, 
after tribulation, we develop an even deeper confidence in the certainty of our relationship with God. It deepens our hope. You know what a vicious cycle is? Have you heard examples of a vicious cycle? For example, one example is you can't get a job without experience, they say. But you can't have experience without a job. So how's that going to work? It's a vicious cycle. Another vicious cycle is lying. Uh, you, you tell lies, it creates a vicious cycle because you then have to tell more lies to cover up the earlier lies. You know how that works. Or dieting can be a vicious cycle. Sometimes people who go on extreme diets and they lose a lot of weight very fast to reach their goal. But when it's extreme and unrealistic and not a diet they can live with, then they begin eating again. The next thing you know, they're higher in weight than they were before they started that original diet. So here we go again. And it's a vicious cycle. Well, God is teaching us that this business of hope is kind of like a vicious cycle, except it's not really vicious at all. It's a blessed cycle. Call it a blessed cycle. I don't know if I've ever heard of that before, but it works, doesn't it? When we really begin to understand what God's doing through these trials, one after another after another, he's building our hope, building our hope, more hope, more hope, strengthening our hope. And we learn to exult in that. David understood this. Look at Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted. David recognized God's doing something good through the difficult times. God's giving us opportunities to experience his grace, to experience his deliverance, to develop hope, to bear witness to others of his faithfulness, opportunities to be developed and trained to reign with him in the future when he comes back and sets up his kingdom. He's working a lot of good stuff through these tribulations, so we need to learn to exult in them. There's an old invitation song we sometimes sing an invitation after a service is over. And usually we think about these words applying to initial salvation. We're urging people to come trust Jesus for the first time. And, and, and I think that's legitimate. That's the way the song was probably meant to be sung. Uh, certainly can be taken that way. Nothing wrong with that. But I think we can apply the words to ourselves every time we enter into a new time of tribulation. And the song goes like this. Only trust him, only trust him, only trust him now. He will save you, he will save you, he will save you now. He'll save us through those tribulations. The only word I might change is that last now when we're thinking about our tribulations because he, he always saves us out of our troubles, but he does it in his perfect time. In his perfect way, but I guess that would ruin the poetry of the song. Guys, let's learn this. Let's learn this lesson. Let's learn to exult in tribulation because God's doing something awesome every time. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for teaching us to exult in hope of the glory you have in the future for us and the glory that we're going to see in our Lord Jesus Christ one day. But Lord, also thank you for teaching us that we can exult and we must exult in tribulation because you're producing something really, really awesome and wonderful. As you teach us to persevere, as you teach us to be steadfast, as you teach us to stay in the battle, and as gradually you increase our confidence in you as we know that you delivered us before and you will certainly deliver us again, and we can just have that hope strengthened and increased in a powerful way as we anticipate the future. So, Lord, help us, help us, help us to learn like the Apostle Paul learned and like you used him to teach us in this passage and many other passages that you have a purpose in every trial. You have a purpose in every difficulty. And if we'll learn to handle it your way and think your thoughts, 
It's going to be awesome. So we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.